Good morning again, last time. I'm Phil Hunter. If you don't know me, I'm the associate pastor here. Um, Brad's sidekick, and uh, I'm pitch hinting for Brad today. Um, big shoes to fill. Um, Brad was planning to preach today, but uh, his kids came down with COVID-19 this past week. And so in the middle of the week, uh, Brad called me and said that he thought it'd be best if he quarantined from home, and we agreed. And, and uh, he's not showing any symptoms yet. Uh, and hopefully he, he won't. They're being pretty careful. So please keep Brad and Aaron and the kids in your prayers this week, that they would, that they would get through this uh, well, and Brad would be back up here next week. Um, he wrote today's sermon and sent it to me. So this is the first time I've ever preached someone else's sermon, uh, which kind of makes it easier and <laughs> kind of doesn't, but um, I've modified it a little bit. So you'll hear a mixture of him and me, hopefully a lot of him and a little bit of me. Uh, if you would like, uh, please turn in your Bibles to Acts 15, 1 through 11, and 22 through 31. It's in your bulletin, or you can, you can go to your own Bible. Uh, so reading from Acts 15, 1. But some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. <clears throat> And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate... Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Then moving to verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we've heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives 
for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So they were sent out. They went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we gather your people here together in Meridian, Idaho, we ask the Lord that you would make your living word live in our hearts today and give us an entirely fresh perspective and understanding of your glorious grace. We pray it all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, following the title of the sermon today, do you know what antithesis is? Maybe you've heard that word before, antithesis, antithesis. If something is true, then the opposite is false. If A is true, then A is not false. Well, what we have here in Acts 15 this morning is an antithesis scenario. It's the first really great debate in early Christianity over the gospel, and it's antithesis over what the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus truly means. So if the gospel is the thesis, the anti-gospel is the antithesis or antithesis. And as we read in verse 2, I'll read that again because I thought it was interesting. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, what that really means is they had a knockdown, drag-out argument, right? They really went after it. They did come to an accord. So what is the truth? What is the thesis? What is the gospel? Well, the truth is this. The God of this majestic universe loves you and you and you so much that he wants to adopt you into his own family. He wants to be your father and give you his eternal inheritance from his own personal estate. This love towards us project is his from beginning to end. And what that means is the pressure is off you. You can't make it happen, even if you wanted to. It's simply because he loves you, and he wants you to be his. And what's made this possible has been entirely accomplished through the life, death, and the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. It's really Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's the formula of the gospel. And that's how you get into God's favor, believing Jesus plus nothing. Another way of putting it, Jesus helps those who cannot help themselves. And that would be all of us. It's grace from God through Jesus from beginning to end. But what has happened in Acts 15, we have a group of teachers... PhDs came down from Jerusalem who are promising or promoting the antithesis of the gospel. Now, to put this in a little bit of context, uh, something was happening in the, in the early church was fascinating. Um, I, 
Very few had thought this even possible in the beginning, even a decade earlier. But the center of gravity of Christianity was changing. Jerusalem was no longer the largest church or even the most important and influential church. The community in Syrian Antioch was now rivaling Jerusalem in size and prominence. The largely Jewish Christian makeup of the Jerusalem church, mostly Jews who had converted, very very conservative, still practicing Jewish customs to a large extent, contrasted significantly with the more ethnically diverse, socially diverse, cosmopolitan community in Antioch. Very different cultures. In reality, two centers of influence emerged. The church in Jerusalem, where James was probably the bishop, right? And was very influential. And they had a significant influence on Jewish Christians wherever they lived in the Middle East and around the world. But Gentile Christians looked more and more to Antioch for their guidance and their direction. And what do we know of the leaders of the church in Antioch? Well, we don't know a lot, but we do know that among them, the scriptures mention that we had Barnabas and Paul, as well as Simeon. His name is also called Niger. He was probably an African man. Lucius of Cyrene and Manian, who had been an intimate friend of Herod the Tetrarch. And we all, we all know how popular Herod was. So we had a diverse group of leaders at Syria, very different than the leadership in Jerusalem. And this isn't too much different than today, is it? Is the center of the Christian world in the United States? Western Europe? It used to be. Not that long ago. Where is it now? Africa, the Far East. It's booming. And probably much larger in population than our own country. So, some things don't change a lot. Well, these false teachers from Jerusalem were teaching that God helps those who become Jews. Oh, sure, they said, we believe that Jesus is the Messiah. We believe that. And we believe he died for your sins. But Jesus was like us. He was Jewish. And all the early Christians were Jewish. The disciples were all Jewish. And God's word is Hebrew. It's Jewish. And for God to really accept you, you really need to become, you need to become Jewish too. And you have to be, if you're a man, you have to be circumcised. Well, circumcision at that time represented an entire system of norms and practices that we call Judaism. It was an entire packaged culture. And to belong to this culture, you had to comply with the Jewish way of life. It was kind of Christianity packaged in a Jewish or circumcision culture. I was just thinking through this, had I been a Gentile sitting there listening to them. Uh, you can imagine how well that form of surgical legalism would have gone over with the, Jewish, I mean, with the Gentile converts. And that was in the days before anesthesia, so consider that. Um, <clears throat> I did. <laughs> the answer the early Christians give to this debate is a very big deal. This accord, this council that they had was a huge importance to the church. Had they not answered the debate in the way they did, our faith would never have become the most influential human movement in all of history, in the history of the world. In some ways, circumcision culture, Christianity, is still trying to be practiced today. We're still adding things on to the gospel.
But what makes Christianity so remarkably multicultural? A church without walls, a church of grace, a church culture of freedom, is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. This antithesis takes three forms in this passage. The first is separation versus openness. The second is self-righteousness versus graciousness. And the last is being other-focused versus being self-centered. Start with the first separation versus openness. If you were a non-Jew at that time and you just wanted to go out to eat with a Jew, it would have been hard to do. Unbelievably difficult. All the laws of the of the Torah were blocking the way. Jews were required to obey the clean laws. Remember Leviticus? That Moses had written about if you eat certain kinds of foods or wear certain fabrics or touch dead animals, then you're unclean. Non-Jewish people were unclean too. We can't hang out with unclean people. Remember the Samaritan woman at the well? She was unclean. The laws were given to make sure the Jews stayed intact as a people and unpolluted by the rest of the pagan world. And it created a culture of separation, us and them. If you want to eat with us, if you want to share life with us, then you need to buy the whole package. Circumcision, kosher foods, Sabbath keeping, the cleanliness laws. Otherwise, you're not welcome. You know, so Peter gets up in verse 7. Get, get Peter. Brothers, I understand the way you think. See, Peter was one of them. He was a good Jew. I used to believe, Peter says, the same thing. But God showed me otherwise. When I visited a Roman centurion, remember that story? And his family, God told me to enter their house, eat what they set before me, and share the message of the gospel to him and his family. They believed in Jesus, and God confirmed that he accepted them as they were by pouring out the Holy Spirit on them. Then, then Paul gets up. It's like a, like a batting rotation here. Paul gets up in verse 12. I agree with Peter, Paul says. I've been traveling all over the Gentile world, and men and women are embracing Jesus as the Messiah. We don't need to require them to become Jews before they become followers of Jesus. God has done something unique in our time. Do you see this? Judaism was meant to be a cocoon which would give birth to this beautiful butterfly called Christianity that would change the whole wide world. Finally, James, the brother of Jesus, stands up. And James had a lot of influence over the church in Jerusalem. They respected James. He was their spiritual leader. James says this in verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who are turning to God. And he's saying something key here. Do you hear that? We should not trouble them with any unnecessary obstacles. If something's an impediment for an outsider to meet God, we should remove it. Get rid of it. This is Christianity 101. This is basic stuff here. We must remove everything that gets between us and Jesus. Everything except Jesus, the man. Jesus, the Son of God. Because Jesus is the only thing that should get in the way. He should be the only thing we have to confront. If something is an impediment, let's get rid of it. 
Most churches don't operate that way, and most Christians, we honestly don't think that way a lot of the time. Brad said he preached a sermon about 10 years ago on this same passage, and he, Brad's a, an humble guy, but he said it wasn't a very good sermon. But since then, he's seen more clearly the tendency in our own hearts to manufacture our own circumcision cultures, our own tack-ons, add-ons to the gospel. In 2010, when Brad preached this the last time, it was Jesus plus homeschooling or Jesus plus Christian schooling or before that, breastfeeding versus bottle feeding or natural family planning versus contraceptives, not eating out on Sundays, not letting a mother work outside of the home, and on and on. And I was reading through Brad's sermon. I thought myself, you know, I can remember back a little bit further than Brad for the obvious reasons. Um, But I remember back in the 1980s, there was a movement called the Moral Majority. How many of you remember that? Some of of you do. Well, I I consider myself a proud member of that movement, and uh, there was a lot of good about the Moral Majority. But the more I thought about it, I thought, well, if there's this thesis antithesis, then if, if you set up a moral majority, then the antithesis of that would be what? The immoral minority? Right? And I thought, that, that didn't ring, that didn't sound too good. I mean, how would the other, you know? So I started thinking, man, a lot, that's a little bit off-putting. Um, maybe the Gentiles, maybe the converts in Antioch felt like that. Are they calling us immoral because we're not Jewish? The last time I checked, Jesus never talked about any of that on the Sermon on the Mount. No, what's really being described here is a certain type of Christian subculture manufactured with its special identity markers. And every group has its identity markers. We all do. How many groups do you belong to? More than one, right? They indicate that we're part of that group. Some of us wear crosses to identify ourselves. There's nothing wrong with that. But it is an identifier. Have you ever walked into a social gathering, maybe after moving to a new city, and felt like you stick out like a sore thumb because you're not dressed the right way? Or if you have a southern accent and you happen to go to Boston for a conference, you feel a little bit out of place, don't you? Or if you belong to a denominational tribe of one brand or the other, I was thinking, (laughs) we got the PCA, the OPC, the EPC, the ECO, and the PCUSA. And that's just Presbyterians. It's clear you're not part of us. Wow. You feel like you're on the outside looking in. And Christianity should never feel like that. Admittedly, some of this is perfectly inevitable because that's how social communities operate. We understand that. And we're not leaving the PCA anytime soon. But what James and Peter and Paul are saying is this, that the church must must do its very best not to weave our own cultural preferences and biases into Christianity itself. The church cannot allow the good things to become ultimate things. It's not the culture of a true gospel community. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal recently detailing how because of COVID-19, interesting, the Amish community is exploding right now. It's expected to quadruple to, I think, a million by 2050. Hard to imagine. The author of the article wrote this, Although the Amish are Christians with roots in the Anabaptist movement, I found them governed as much by the ordnung, that's a German word, as by the Bible. German meaning order. 
The ordnung is the unwritten set of regulations that make the Amish, well, Amish. The images everyone associates with them, plain clothing, beards without mustaches, women with uncut hair, horses and buggies, it's all part of the way of life prescribed by this order. Why is it that Jesus plus this ordning or order is so attractive to humans? When the world is chaotic, a tight-knit monocultural group where everybody has the same attitudes towards technology and modernity, specialized, it's a niche way of life. It's very safe. Traditional Islam is similar. To be Islamic is to buy the whole package, and I mean the whole package. When Islam comes in, it slowly suppresses and replaces the culture with its own Arabic culture. It Arabizes whatever culture it enters by bringing about the greatest amount of conformity and uniformity. Huge pressure to conform. And it feels very safe in a chaotic world. In the past year, chaos and dissension that we've experienced, subcultures, even our own country, seem to have become a little bit more or a lot more restrictive and insular. And they've multiplied. Friends, please don't let that happen here in our church. The mission of the church is to make disciples, not to form subcultures. Wherever there's a church, there should be more people who are beginning to follow Jesus. And there should be more and more people who are going deeper with Jesus, like at Antioch. And here's the thing about Jesus. He doesn't want to turn you into a Jew. He wants to turn you into a Christ-like Gentile. Now, there may be a few Jews here, and if that's the case, he wants to turn you into a Christ-like Jew. <laughs> because Jesus doesn't do circumcision culture. Jesus doesn't want us to be culture, cultural clones any more than the church in Antioch was. If we had to first become Jewish in order to become Christian, our faith would be culturally bound, and it's not. It would not have been free to develop in different cultural contexts to create the butterfly the butterfly would have stayed in its comfortable cocoon. So if you're a Jew, be a Jew with all your heart in Christ. If you're a citizen of Jerusalem or Antioch, be one with all your heart in Christ, whatever your zip code is, whatever place God has placed you in, wherever he's put you, wherever you've landed, be it with all your heart and be fully in Christ. It's the only way you'll credibly demonstrate Christ to all the other people around you in your own culture. Can't you hear the difference? Judaism, separation, they don't mix. Don't be like them. Don't succumb to the Gentile culture. There are rules to follow. This is our culture. Everyone must buy in. Christianity is way more flexible, less suspicious, more open, warmer. There's space here for you, no matter where you come from, because we're a community without walls. Which leads us to the second antithesis, self-righteousness versus graciousness. Judaism created a culture of separation and, secondly, a culture of self-righteousness. The two go together. They always do. And this is apparent in Paul's later letters to the churches, particularly in Galatians. One of the things about Judaism, you had to do a lot of stuff. If there are any Jews here, you can affirm that there are a lot of things to do, right? They're not. They're good things. A lot of rules. And whatever you do, a lot of, whenever you do a lot of stuff, it requires a high degree of commitment, then you tend to feel a little bit better 
and the guy that doesn't, and the gal that doesn't. Have you ever, have you ever maybe it's been a, a New Year's resolution, decided, yeah, I'm really going to start working out this year. I'm really going to get pumped. I'm going to get in shape. At my age, we don't use the word pumped as much as I used to, but um, I'm going to get in shape. I'm going to get bigger. I'm going to get stronger. I'm going to see gains. And you actually do start seeing gains. You work out. You get after it, right? You go to the gym. You're watching your diet. Your habits change. Not as much dessert. Everything in your life changes. You start looking better in the mirror. How do you feel towards that overweight guy walking out of McDonald's with the Big Mac in his hand? Do you feel a little smug? Like, in your mind, that guy's a slacker, you know. Yeah, it comes to you. I mean, it happens. Circumcision culture wasn't just we're different from them, but we're better than them. And we all have this tendency. We carry these little badges of self-righteousness around. If you look hard enough, you'll probably find a few. It's not good nutrition. It's nutrition righteousness. It's not alternative medicine. It's medical righteousness. It's not politics. It's political righteousness. It's not a good career. It's career righteousness. There are all these badges we're working hard towards giving all our effort, which makes us feel better about ourselves, but they require a lot of effort. All other religions, even though they start by inspiring you, in the end, they start putting burdens on you. The gospel always starts by taking burdens off of you. The gospel is you're saved by grace, so the burden of performance is gone. The burden of fear, non-existent. The burden of not measuring up, Well, you can't measure up. You never really could. Now listen to Peter in verse 10. Brothers, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? In other words, we're trying to make these Gentiles do what we weren't able to pull off. What does he mean? Well, the yokes were these huge wooden tools that were placed over the yoke of oxen, over the necks of oxen to guide them in the same direction. The Torah was a, jo- was a yoke. Oh, sorry to say joke, sorry about that. That yoke was good. It was from God, but it was also very heavy. So heavy, in fact, Peter says, we could never live up to it. And if you come from a traditional culture, you know how heavy the yoke of parental expectations. We have a lot of children here, young people. I was one at some time. Um, but I can remember when I, was, when I was young, my parents or teachers would say, you know, you need to decide what you want to be, Phil. Okay. <laughs> but by the age of 12, maybe you wrote down, I want to be the president, or I want to be an astronaut or a movie star, and I, I wanted to be the next Johnny Unitas. Uh, most of you don't know him. But uh, I want to be a quarterback, at least for five or six years. I like to win a gold medal in the Olympics. Ever since you've been 10 or 12 years old, everyone's been telling you, set goals. You can do anything you want to, you can be anything you want to be. Have you heard that? Isn't that liberating? Kind of. It's a little bit intimidating, isn't it? And as the years will go by, you start throwing those things out. I'm never going to be an NFL quarterback. I'm never going to be, they kind of go out. Or perhaps more crushing, maybe you do attain what you always hoped you would. Maybe you achieved one of those things. You made it. Now what? Someone wrote, The biggest pattern I'm seeing with friends right now is watching them achieve everything they've wanted to achieve, only to realize that career success isn't the dream that they were promised. How is it that our brightest and most talented people ace their sats and attend the best schools in the world, finally get a job in management consulting? That's the trophy? Really? 
David Foster Wallace writes this, I think that the ultimate way you and I get lucky is that if you have some success early in life, you get to find out early it doesn't really mean anything, which means you get to start early the work of figuring out what does mean something. When the gospel comes, it takes off those burdens. Parents, self, performance, all that is taken off of you because grace brings spiritual freedom. You may not realize it, but these false teachers who came down from Jerusalem, they were the first cancel culture. That's kind of become a word this year, hasn't it? Cancel culture. This is evident in Paul's letter to the Galatians. They wanted to cancel the message of freedom in Christ. They wanted to cancel the message of grace. As we at All Saints here, as we wrestle with what kind of community we want to be in the next 10 years, I urge you to keep foremost in your mind Jesus' most famous parable in Luke 15, often referred to the parable as the parable of the prodigal son. The story about a loving father who receives both a smug, self-righteous son and a runaway son. With respect to the runaway, prodigal son, his contribution to his relationship with his dad was sin, rebellion, and disdain. Parents, can you imagine this? One of your kids comes up to you and says, I'd be better off, mom or dad, if you were dead. Give me my inheritance now. Give me what's coming to me after you die so I can run off and live my life the way I want to now. I'm done with you, but I want your stuff. And that's precisely what the prodigal son asked of his dad. And amazingly, his dad gave it to him, exactly what he asked for. What followed were days of wild, independent living as he made a train wreck of his own life, which is what we all do when we're independent from God. So in the story, he comes home like a dog with his tail tucked between his legs. Remorseful, he'd already rehearsed his apologies, and he started begging his father to let him work as a slave. Dad, I can't survive without your help. Come on. Well, that was his contribution to their relationship. What was his dad's contribution? Pure love. My son, all I have is yours. I'm going to slaughter the fattened calf, which is biblical code for we're going to party like this neighborhood has never seen before. And we're going to celebrate your homecoming because I love you. And the other contribution, clothing, garments, a family ring, a signet ring, a sign of belonging. He gave him shoes to walk forward in the life that had been given him. And he put a robe on him, a royal robe. So The gospel is, even though you've done so much wrong yesterday and today and probably tomorrow, When you believe in Jesus Christ, there's a sense that in the eyes of God, you can do no wrong. Isn't that a great thought? He loves you like the father loves the runaway son. But a circumcision culture wants to cancel that story. It tries to silence the message of grace, and then and now, circumcision Christianity puts so many unnecessary obstacles for the runaway son to get back to his father. It's like there are all these secret service agents and bodyguards requiring that you present your credentials before you can get through to see the man. Checkpoints. I ask you this, will all saints be a place of checkpoints? Well, one sign that Jesus runs your church is that the closer you get to the inside, the most blatantly obvious that grace is the heartbeat here. When grace is the heartbeat of a church, it shows up in a particular way. 
It shows up in the form of new people. And I see some new people here today. Welcome. Antioch was a place like that. Scott Sauls writes this. If grace is the heartbeat, you see it in people who have hit bottom. People who are disabled, people who are underdogs, people for whom life is just not working. People who are weak and unclean. People who are behind. People who are addicted. People who are sexually damaged. People who have regrets. People who have shame. People who haven't had a shower in three weeks. These people will start to say, this place and these people... I'm welcome with him. This is home. Well, the third antithesis is otherness, being focused toward others rather than ourselves. It's found in verse 28. The decision that they made, the church council, was for both the Jews and Gentile believers to consider their brothers in kindness. Said to the Gentile believers that you don't have to be circumcised. But it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. So they asked the Gentiles to be kind and considerate to the Jewish converts. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. That's kind of a weird list, isn't it? Those wouldn't be on our discipleship checklist here. No strangled animal meat? Ever since then, ever since that was written, Christians... I genuinely wondered if they could have a rare steak. Uh, and the best explanation that I've been able to find is this. All these were rituals that took place in the pagan worship in the Jewish, outside the Jew, Jewish culture. If you went into a pagan temple of the day, they would sacrifice an animal by strangling the animal and drinking its blood. They'd do things with temple prostitutes. For a Jewish person, temp, pagan temples were pictures of hell on earth. So they were asking the Gentile Christians to avoid those things, to consider their Jewish brothers and sisters. It was, please, lovingly abstain from culturally offensive practices for the sake of your Jewish brothers and sisters. Don't get within a quarter mile of those places. Abstain for the good of your church community. In closing, it's simply Jesus plus nothing is everything. That belief creates a certain kind of community that's not monocultural, It's not separatist. It's not scary. It's not filled with checkpoints, but a culture that smells like and feels like the embrace of that father. Rhoda and I had Muslim neighbors when we lived in Scottsdale several years ago. They lived kitty corner from us. And they were in their 40s, and uh, she babysat their, their little kids. And we got to be friends of theirs. Really neat couple. He was an orthodontist, and she was an attorney. And they were very strict followers of Islam. They prayed five times a day, had prayer cloths in their home, and ate their own type, type of food, which was really actually quite good. And he just loved golf. One day I invited him, I went over and invited him to our church's monthly Saturday men's breakfast. We had planned to have a, a golf outing at Top Golf, which is a place where you can go up on the second tier and just hit golf balls way out, and there's nets all over the place. You can't hurt anything. But you just have a blast. You sit around in chairs and just talk and have a good time with, with other guys. <clears throat> so I invited, his name is Usama, so I invited him to come, and he was all over. He said, man, awesome, let's go. So I, I picked him up, and we got there, and I introduced him to maybe 20 other guys from the church. And... Uh, they welcomed him, and we went through the buffet that they had prepared there, the breakfast buffet, and, and I, I kind of 
shepherded him away from the bacon and sausage, and he was good with that. And I, I, I avoided the bacon myself, not to offend him, and, and uh, everything went great. One of the men in the group got up to give a, a testimonial, a brief testimonial. And I was curious how Osama would, would, would pick up on that, but he, he was very respectful. Uh, afterwards, we went out and uh, took our turns hitting golf balls and talking, and the guys exchanged business cards with Usama, asked him to come back. Afterwards, after we got in the truck, he, he turned around and he asked me, is, it, is this the way you, you all behave all the time, or is this like a one-off deal, or are you always like this? And I said, what do you mean? He said, what, welcoming to strangers and, and all that? And I said, well, I hope so, <laughs> on a good day, maybe. Because we're just sinners, Usama. We're just sinners saved by grace. And he said to me, he said, that's a strange concept. Something like this would never happen at the mosque. But I really enjoyed this morning. I hope we can do it again. I never forgot Usama. And I hope he did or does at some point encounter the same grace that I have. Don't you? Well, our world is literally starving for grace and church communities where it's on full display. Hopefully, Usama got a taste of it. We need to let it soak in that there's nothing we can do to make God love us more and nothing we can do to make God love us less. Jesus plus nothing really is everything. May all saints reflect that reality. It's God's gracious truth. Amen.